Hi, I'm Holly Cairns, a TD for Cork Southwest, and this is my podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Budget Week, so yeah, let's talk a bit about that. Great. So um, it's Friday today, and you got back from Dublin yesterday night. And so this is your third Budget Week as a TD. Um, I guess I'm interested in what changes for you um, on Budget Week. Obviously, you're a member of the opposition, but what what's the atmosphere like? Is there is it is there a lot of hype around it? What's it like from your point of view? It is a very different week, and I suppose just for listeners as well to explain. I think everybody kind of knows what the budget is, but I never thought about it in those just kind of zoomed out terms. So basically in autumn of every year, the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform announce the government's spending, tax borrowings and plans for the following year. Um, covers all of the government spending and revenues, um, includes all government departments and agencies and state bodies, as well as the local government sector. Okay. So it's basically all of the money that they collect in tax throughout the year. How do they decide to spend that for the following year? But it is a very different week, so the barriers are up to prevent any kind of maybe aggressive protests or anything like that. And most of the time I see the barriers and I think, ah, this is over the top. You know, what, what do you want to... Like when the barriers were up at the first week back at the Dole and there was the fuss protest outside, I was thinking, is this necessary? But then, of course, there was actually a protest later that made them very necessary. But anyway, the barriers were up for no reason. There was no extreme protests, and I suppose that's kind of a lot to do with the nature of this particular budget so it was a huge one like unprecedented one of the biggest uh, 11 billion so they're calling it a kind of like a bonanza like a giveaway a little bit for everyone so there wasn't a kind of situation whereby it was how could you not increase the social welfare payments they did it just enough you know there was it was seen as a big spending budget and in advance of it even though when we get the budget on the day, we're not allowed to leave the room. It's all supposed to be so confidential and secret. Of course, for three days roughly in advance of that, there's all the different leaks coming out. So they're kind of kite flying and giving away little bits of information about it. And then on the day, there was actually even more. So they kind of orchestrated in a way that made it seem really good. It was like, wow, well, OK, there was an increase in social welfare payments. There was a payment to people with disabilities. There was... Um, a big kind of tax bonus for people who earn a good bit and all of those different things, a double child benefit payment. So it seemed like this is great for everybody. And the media really ran with that as well, I thought. It was very mm-hmm. much like, this is great, go on the budget. Um, but it's a shame that that tactic works so well mm-hmm. because when you think about it, and like we just zoomed out, you get, the government gets all of this money that they collect every year, people pay their taxes and then they can spend it. There's different ways you can spend it. So you can just see it, all of it as payouts, these one-off payments, or with that taxpayer's money, they can invest in things that make things cheaper for all of us, like public services that make life more affordable. So, you know, free healthcare, for example, actually genuinely free education, those kind of things really benefit everybody equally. And these kind of one-off payments are very short term and it's to kind of quell I think public disquiet and public genuine fears about getting through the winter and all of that but like you know an example of that the 500 euro disability payment and like people with a disability have a disability every day of the year so 500 euro is 
almost insulting so is the, the core social welfare payment for somebody with a disability but they get away with it by pointing to these one-off measures to say they're looking after the most vulnerable in our society look at the double payment in child uh, benefit look at the 500 euro disability payment point to the one-off measures and say look aren't isn't this budget fantastic and it protects the most vulnerable but the long-term measures benefit people who earn 40,000 or more it's kind of a clever way of doing it so you think that they're Basically, I mean, I guess everyone does this to some extent, but the media is very focused on headlines and who gets the news the fastest. So they drip feed it so that it's all the kind of sounding good news that come out first. But then when you actually break it down, um, like, for example, the the disability payment, yeah, it's a one-off payment. You were calling for um, a long-term weekly payment of twice that much a year yeah. um, to actually deal with, to actually start dealing with the cost of having a disability. Exactly. So when you look at, it might sound good at first, um, at first reading, but the, it's not going to actually make people's lives easier in the long run, the people who most need it. Exactly. And then the tragedy is when there's a budget like that of 11 billion, that's an opportunity to lift people out of poverty. That's the kind of budget where we can go places with where we're, where you can start implementing long-term visions around disability support services, around children's disability network teams, around our education system, our healthcare system, and crucially things like climate action. Like it was page 15 before Pascal mentioned climate. And like, when you think about it, there's two ways. There's an ideological difference, obviously, between this kind of FFG government and the Greens, obviously, where it's kind of like a right-wing approach. So tax cuts and short-termism and you kind of stay elected, like you stay in government because that short termism works in terms of votes. But then obviously a socially democratic approach is to invest in the public services and to spend that tax in that way rather than payouts as they see it. So we're talking about investment rather than just expenditure. And like when you consider countries like Denmark are so wealthy because they invested in their renewable energy. And Ireland's at a time where it's one of those like kind of like Things for Ireland that could be so amazing and so big for us that we could be like leading exporters of renewable energy, particularly in relation to wind. And all of these like companies are kind of looking at investing in Ireland now. And the government are saying, well, let this private company do it. That'll be good for us. People that be paying tax here. But like bigger picture, if we state owned those companies, all of that money comes back to us as a country. And of course, if the likes of now Shell have recently pulled out of the Irish engagement in this one, you know, which that's because our legislation so far behind. That's because the other kind of slow paced nature of how the Irish government works. But if we were ambitious enough to say we want to invest in this, if Shell thought it was going to make the money, well, it probably was going to. So, of course, the Irish government could do it. And that could be in the national interest rather than in the interest of a private company, which is what we see played in every single department, Department of Health, there's private companies making a lot of money in the Department of Housing. Investment funds are making a lot of money. And now, of course, in the energy sector, we will see a, probably a private company making a huge amount of money that we could make as a nation. So when you look at those opportunities where there's big investment, yes, you can have a budget where you give a little bit to everybody, get all the good headlines and ultimately try and stay in power with that approach. Or you can have a bit more faith in the electorate that they might recognise what's a good fiscal policy, what's good forward planning, what's a long-term plan that will benefit everybody and avoid crises like this energy one. Like if we become more energy secure, we don't have to kind of 
like bend our budgets around the cost of energy coming in from other countries. It's just, to me, it's a no-brainer. And at the same time, I completely see how it happens because before I was actually engaged in politics, I didn't see the budget like that. I saw it as like these headlines, these kind of sound bites, like, mm. oh, great, a 500 euro payment to somebody with a disability. That sounds really good and like fair play to them. I feel fairly happy about this budget. But when you really look at it and you really think about it, that's why there is like, you know, I was thinking about, I didn't go into politics for the crack. It's not particularly <laughs> enjoyable. There was a need for a socially democratic party in Ireland offering that kind of alternative incredibly. Um, but other countries have had that for a long time. And mm-hmm. I guess that's just the unique nature of Ireland with our civil war parties and everything. Mm. And I think it was um, it was something when you were discussing in the, in the doll, the budget, that like this idea of investment over giving away a little bit of money to a lot of people. Yeah, so like the, the income tax um, change, like no, nobody's going to refuse money. Mm. And, you know, those that benefit from it, Will get will it will amount to a few euro a week, um ultimately, and that'll be welcomed by many people. But the idea is it that 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 comes to about one point one billion in total, is what that is, and then it's the idea is well, it's not only, um the ideology of getting a cut, tax cut versus investing it. It's what can you do with that one point one billion as an amount of money. If the state invests that, you get more out of that one point one billion than instead of giving it to a load of giving a small amount to everybody because of economies of scale that mm-hmm. you can invest in things and therefore uh, uh, so the point is that like what's a more prudent use of that money and getting more out of that money by investing mm-hmm. and ultimately saving money up along because more teachers uh, lets people be better educated children's disability network teams helps avoiding people yeah end up in deteriorating situations like it and which we will have to pay for anyway like it's it makes to us from social democratic point of view ideological sense but it makes fiscal sense as well it's better better bang for your buck and you're saving money in the long term but then you pointed out maybe if you're more concerned about a, a quick turnaround and that resulting in votes then it just makes sense yeah and like as all of the kind of independent expert advice like and particularly coming from people like St. Vincent de Paul from Social Justice Ireland, all of that was like the need for targeted measures. I don't think that could have been more overemphasised in the lead up to the budget. And then lo and behold, you get the same support to pay your rising energy bills, regardless of your income. So like a minister on 160 grand plus gets the same as somebody on a social welfare payment or on minimum wage. So they did not target. Um, And that was the single biggest piece of advice coming in from experts on preventing poverty throughout the crisis doesn't make sense to double everybody's child benefit to give everybody the same amount to tackle the energy crisis and they were just adamant on doing it and with that eroding the tax base making those tax cuts Mm. and we all know that our public services are just about scraping by there's not enough particularly just look at health you know there's so much that could have been done in terms of investment there and yeah I guess you just don't necessarily see it when you see the headlines or you hear the sound yeah, bites yeah, from yeah. the media. And the, yeah, the, the, just the thing on the, the Instagram post that's just the... This, this, the this. this, this. It's so annoying to hear, like, I was listening to Newsweek something and a journalist in Leinster House going on and saying, yeah, you know, like, the opposition are basically just kind of scrambling around trying to find something to criticise. And it's like, were you listening? Yeah. We would take a completely different approach. Yeah. Um, but like that, they just listen to Sinn Féin and then go and write their piece a lot of the time. And that's just really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then the other parts of like another thing beyond the headline is like there's the t- 
tax credit for renters. Mm. And that like that's again like a tax credit is dependent on you being a, 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 a self-employed a PAYE that can afford that can get a tax credit. So those many people on fixed incomes aren't going to benefit from that. But then also the provisions of being a named person on a lease, being in a rented property. We know it turns out over the summer that that uh, <laughs> compliance with um, um, officially registered properties isn't as high as we think might want <laughs> exactly. it to be. Exactly, even within uh, the, the TDs themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, so like there's all the, it look again that headline looks really good. It's like four hundred people for rent, four hundred euro for renters, but it's not. It's 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 dependent on this and this and this and and with the best will in the world some people never get around to doing their taxes yeah and it's it's a it's an opt-in system with so many loops so like it's it's not yeah. what the headline says mm-hmm. not to mention the fact that you know without kind of control of the rental market like a rent freeze that will just drive inflation in rents is what the experts are saying that yeah. a tax credit without a rent freeze just means an extra hundred euro to landlords rather than an extra hundred euro in a renter's pocket some renters' pockets, some like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, just the same thing over and over again. It's like, oh, how did this somehow end up benefiting somebody who isn't the renter and making rent prices actually increase? And then, of course, they somehow have to pay for the micro controversy. And they, understandably, is well. You hear the government TDs, or some of them, defending the fact that, like, how do we pay for mica? We have to get money from taxes to pay for these things that everyone thought we should pay for. But like. How is it falling back on somebody who's trying to build a home? Like, what's going? Like, yeah. Why is that the way that you get it? And then there's a tax break for higher earners. Like, it just, it's it's about priorities. And I think one of the things that comes up every year, of course, is the horse and greyhound funding and the fact that they've increased the greyhound funding by 0.2 million. And they seem to do that every year. There's an increase, and it's like, you know, 0.2 million in the grand scheme of huge budget. It's not like it's massive, but it just kind of, kind of epitomizes the skewed priorities that the government seems to have like why is that priority why is there an increase in that when there's a cost of living crisis why does the greyhound racing industry get such a huge cash injection every year but irish guide dogs for the blind don't it's this kind of like things can be done so differently mm-hmm. and that's just one example mm-hmm. of a, yes in my opinion terrible decision making um and it doesn't have to be that way yeah absolutely oh it was the phrase you used last year was it show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities. Yeah, and I'll tell you what your priorities are. That's it, yeah. Yeah. That's it. If you really look through it without just looking at those headlines, you can see that the priorities aren't, I don't think, where most Irish people's priorities are. Mm-hmm. Mm. There was the other headline of a vacant house tax come in, which is obviously something that the Social Democrats have been calling for mm-hmm. um, for a long time. But again, when you actually look at the detail of it... Point yeah three percent yeah so can you talk us through that so what does that mean so if you've got a vacant property there's they were you know introducing a a tax to try and disincentivize you from having a vacant or derelict property that that tax would then incentivize the owner to either sell it on or turn it into accommodation that somebody would live in to try Mm -hmm. and address the housing crisis but at 0.3 percent of the value of the house yeah it doesn't yeah. It doesn't have any teeth, it won't actually work, it's ineffective, but it's paying lip service to the fact that people want that. And yeah. then they can say that and all their sound bites. But like, why not just make it higher? Make it work. Yeah. yeah. We're in a housing disaster. Like, even Kian was on his beat in the door on the first day of the budget. Like, do you not know that we're in the middle of a housing crisis? It just doesn't seem to make any actual sense. But I guess it's more of the same. And I, I think that we know 
that it's successive Fine Gael governments who've gotten into this housing mess by kind of prioritising those bigger interests over the interests of people who need a home. But you, you presume that at this point it's become so damaging to them as a party that so many people have changed the way they vote as a result that, oh, now they're probably trying to change their tack and then things like that happen and you just have to say, what... Do you not know what's going on? Do you not realise it? And there is that kind of feeling, I think, for the general public that they're just so insulated from it. They're so far from not having somewhere to live or not being able to own a home. You know, people in Leinster House tend to already own their own home, basically, the elected mm-hmm. representatives. So there is that feeling. It just, it blew my mind. And it was, like, just so annoying then to see how the media portrayed it and then how the public might feel about it until you know perhaps later in the year when like that 500 euro of disability payment I think amounts to 35 euro a week between now and January or something like that it's not at all impactful yeah yeah and then was it the Department of Health had commissioned a report on the actual cost of having a disability yeah so they social protection so they know that their own capacity review said, yeah, it cost between 10 and 12,000 annually. But of course, that was pre inflation, pre the energy crisis. And so, ten, so if a person has a disability, their cost of living is between 10 and 12,000 euro more a year. Minimum. Minimum. Yeah. And they're giving, they know that. Yeah. And so, what their solution is to give a 500 euro one off payment yeah. to those yeah. people. Yeah. And then they're yeah paying like you know the one point one billion that will go to higher income earners like it's yeah. just it's blatant when you actually look at it. And that as well is something again which you raised during the week yeah. is when we because we 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 would have talked about this in a previous podcast as well in July. You had the motion, in the door at seeking, fifteen euro increase, um for disability allowance and a twenty euro week. Another twenty euro for anybody on any um, disability related payment. Mm. So people, but most people benefiting from thirty five euro, euro a week. But the government passed that, yeah, and gave the impression that that's what they were going to do, yeah, and intentionally didn't disrupt that. And then, like we had people out there on the day and people afterwards, genuinely happy that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now, we, we quickly the following week, you were asking questions with. Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, and it was clear that it wasn't going to happen, but then it comes to the doll, uh, then comes, sorry, to the budget, and, yeah, they, it's just, it's like, it's, it's, it's very cynical, it gives the impression people that are going to, they're going to do something, and then just the headline passes, and then it's very clear that, so instead of 15 euro, they get 12, instead of um, 1,040, mm-hmm. perpetually, they yes. get 500 once off. Yeah. And I wonder if people are cynical about that. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You know, and then it, it like, and but it's people's lives as well. Like. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just to say that we want with this podcast to sort of do a monthly roundup. So this is a kind of the end of September one. Um, there is a proposal in that home births would be limited to people who live within thirty minutes of a hospital, a maternity hospital. Yes. Anyone who lives in West Cork knows we do not have a maternity hospital, so that essentially eliminates most of West Cork from having the option or the choice to have a home birth. And and Cork and Kerry are the highest number of home births in the country, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that I didn't quite realise. I suppose having grown up in West Cork, I know loads of people with home births. There is a real culture around it here. And I didn't realise 
that that's not necessarily the same in other parts of the country mm-hmm. but it does exclude whole other parts of the country from this rule mm-hmm. you know it's not just West Cork it's so many other counties lots of Donegal yeah, Mayo, Kerry, everywhere mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's a national and issue for sure we should state it's a midwife assisted home birth it's not so I only learned about the difference yeah. when we were working on this yeah. free birthing is what they're worried that people might do now if they're oh, yes. not yeah, yeah. allowed to have a midwife yeah. assisted home birth do you know what? I was talking to a midwife about this and she said when she moved to West Cork like in the 80s or whatever there was a lot of that going on like a lot of free birthing mm-hmm. and she couldn't believe it that's how she ended up going into mm. home births because she thought that this, you know needs supervision and you know midwifery yeah. all of that stuff mm-hmm. um, so I suppose yeah I mean one of the important things to highlight is that like if it's banned it won't those prevent yeah. home births it will yeah. make them less safe and yeah. and probably there'll be a lot more side of the road births which we often hear about in West Cork as well yeah. where people are trying to make it mm. exactly I know somebody who I think it was their second child and they're going to the hospital and it was like really just horrible like it's you know an hour and a half or more so I was thinking an hour and a half from here but like two hours two and a half hours from some place in West Cork to get to the hospital and if you're having a quick birth that's dangerous mm you're trying to get there and she had ended up having to stop on the side of the road and the ambulance came and ultimately she ended up having her child in the kind of doorway of the hospital and then when she's having her child after that 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 was the scariest thing for her to go through that again and so she thought about going for a home birth and met with the midwife and I think her kind of explaining it is much better than me trying to. So I'm just going to try and paraphrase her. But ultimately, she described it as she got another option. You know, at any point, you can say, actually, I'm going to go to the hospital. Be that a week before you give birth, two months beforehand, any time. But you have this whole new option basically available to you. And for her, it was was her third child and her most positive experience. But ultimately, it almost reminds me of the repeal debate in that, like, you can have safe home births or unsafe home births. Mm-hmm. Banning them isn't yep. going to make everyone's birth safer by virtue of them being close to a hospital. And that's just the reality. But it is something that dominated, yeah, when we first got back, we were really eager to raise that and make sure it was highlighted and ask basically, what is the evidence behind this decision? Because it's not supported by any kind of findings or research or anything at all like that, which just makes it... Um, I suppose it's just an, an added thing that makes it unbelievable. I can't believe that they're actually trying to do that. And, and they've also banned home births. Water births. Sorry, water, water births, yeah. Mm. So can you talk about that? That happened last year. Yeah, another um, temporary, it was a temporary ban, kind of has been called a temporary ban, but I don't think it's been lifted since, and that's going on a long time now. Um, I remember when my goddaughter was born, that was in place, so... My friend, who was planning on having a home birth, was told she could go into the water until the moment when she was about to give birth, and then she would have to get out of the water. Um, again, not necessarily ideal, but that's the kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of non-evidence-based decisions that are just flying in and might be implemented. So ultimately, our job was to raise these issues, draw attention to them, and hope that then that decision won't go ahead mm-hmm. you know, it's a recommendation yeah, it's at the moment we need it to be prevented so we're mm-hmm. trying to highlight it get people to email their tds 
HSE, the Minister for Health, and loads of that is happening, which is great. But for any listeners who maybe haven't seen that on social media, we have a template email and you can go onto this website called Find My TDs and it tells you all of your local TDs email addresses. It really does make a difference when you email them and, you know, ask for this to be changed because, yeah, it's ultimately why the government make different decisions. And I suppose I'm always really conscious of when we talk about births and home births, a lot of people have had tragedies and losses and it's, you know, can potentially be triggering. So mm-hmm. it's good to just put that out in the outset. Yeah. You know, we need to talk about this because it's an issue that comes onto our radar and something we need to address and something that a lot of concerned families and parents are getting in touch with us about, not to mention midwives and the Midwives Association of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Very good. And then something else that um, came up in the first few weeks of the doll was the announcement that the Mental Health Commission, is that their name? Yep. Yes. Um, have recommended or have ordered yeah. Bantry Hospital's mental health unit to be reduced from 18 beds to 11 and the reason they've done that is because they say that the building isn't fit for purpose yes so can you talk a bit about that and the impact that's going to have yeah and again i think on the outset like um a lot of us in west cork our initial reaction was like what do they mean the mental health commission i'll come in here and shut down the beds like what's your solution where are people supposed to go but important i suppose to just highlight that the role of the mental health commission as a statutory body is just to ensure that facilities nationwide are up to a good standard and that's really important we need our mental health services to be of a good standard and you know ultimately it's not their job because when i first got into this and rang management in the hsc i said how can they do this what do they not need to provide a solution and management said to me they actually don't that is the HSE's job. Yeah. Their job is to make sure the facilities are up to scratch. Our job is to make sure that there's enough beds of that standard. And so important to say that because I think a lot of initially we were like, I was hearing a lot of people being like, God, the Mental Health <laughs> Commission, how dare they? Yeah. Um, we do need people to keep an eye on those standards and make sure they're up to scratch. And yeah, the basically the issues in Bantry Hospital, a lot of it is to do with the size of, the building so there's too many multi-occupancy rooms and that's not suitable for everyone depending on what they're going through and um, there's things like when you arrive for an assessment that assessment should happen close to the entrance for people's privacy and their dignity and things like that you know that you shouldn't be walking through different parts of the building to get to that and then I suppose crucially one of the things that has come up is that there's too many points of ligature in the building and that needs to be addressed it's to prevent people being able to self-harm. Okay. So the building is not suitable in terms of preventing people from being able to harm themselves. Okay. And that's really important. And it's good that the Mental Health Commission are keeping an eye on that. Um, so ultimately, we need to make sure that the building is up to standard, a really good standard, and we need to make sure we have enough beds. So with 18 beds at the moment, the general occupancy of the mental health facility is at 14, 15. So 11 just doesn't work. And of course, with, you know, increase in population, all of those things, we need 18 at the least, because like I say, the general occupancy is 14, 15. It's often 18. Yeah. So we simply cannot reduce the number of beds. Um, and ultimately, once the Mental Health Commission make this decision, it's a legally binding decision. Nothing can be done about that, except the HSE can make an appeal to the district court. So the HSE went away and they got some legal advice and the advice was that they could have grounds for an appeal. They have appealed the decision. That could take about two months 
in that two month period, the beds will remain open, the 18 beds. But ultimately, what the HSE need is a case. So if they're going into the district court and saying, we want to keep these beds open, we're going to build this unit or we're going to renovate the existing unit and make it in a way that is up to standard and we can keep those beds. Well, then they will probably win the case. (laughs) If they go into the court and say, we just want to keep the beds despite the space constraints, the multi-occupancy rooms and the points of bigotry in the building, well, then they're probably going to lose the case. That's just the reality. So one of the things that I was really pushing for in advance of the budget and as soon as we got back was like, we need multi-annual funding for mental health services. And like, just to zoom out, I think it's always important to Ireland spends less percentage of its overall GDP on mental health compared to the rec- the the recommended amount by the mental health reform but also the european average um and there is no multi-annual funding so you can't kind of plan ahead for things like uh, new builds for these kind of services so does that mean that every year when the budgets are announced you find out how much is mental health mental health but in other areas they know for 10 years what they're going to get yeah yeah like for example in older people's care in recent years there's they've adopted that approach of multi-annual funding to ensure that there's adequate care there and that's really good and really welcome and we need the same approach to be adopted for mental health services and it's like i think we just i mean in reality it's always been kind of poor relation in the department of health i was talking to somebody recently and they were saying they were somewhere doing um the seaweed baths or something mm-hmm. and said that their aunt said to them like this is supposed to be really good for your mental health. Like it was almost a taboo. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. yes. that's the yeah, kind of, yeah, that's yeah, where absolutely. we're at. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's still kind of seen like yeah. that. But, you know, having proper services helps tackle that kind of taboo as well. You know, yes. the fact that yeah, it's yeah. kind of all this kind of hush hush and, mm. um, you know, the department, like, it's just so badly managed. Like one of the things that we've raised so much is around eating disorder services. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's a mental health condition most associated with mortality and, you know really affects young people particularly now in the age of social media and everything it's just so hard and there's really inadequate services here and you know three inpatient beds in the entire country all of this stuff but like previously that department and that junior ministry had assigned 1.9 million I think and not one cent of it was spent so there's this kind of mismanagement as well like even when funding's allocated Mm -hmm. and then the following year like no funding allocation under the national Asian disorder treatment plan so you just see this like terrible management lack of oversight lack of planning and maybe we don't realize how big an impact that has until it's on our doorstep in somewhere like Bantry Hospital now I think the entire community here has realized Mm -hmm. um but it just I suppose you know we've covered the budget but like it goes to show how important these budgetary decisions are yes and instead of like payouts and you know tax breaks for high income earners we need to invest in our kind of threadbare public services to ensure that people who need mental health supports, for example, have them. And it just goes to show how important a socially democratic approach could be, that like if you have a government that invests in public services instead of payouts, expenditure all the time rather than investment, you have a different kind of a country that provides these supports to people who need them the most. Get off my soapbox. (laughs) And then also for local fears around Boundary Hospital are yeah. amplified. Like we were already worried all the time on edge. Like, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? It really doesn't instill trust no. 
in the yeah. HSC and ensuring that we have services down here and you know talking about home births and stuff it's like they're going oh well you're not 30 minutes within a maternity hospital so you can't have a home birth like what about putting a maternity hospital within 30 minutes of us for god's yeah. sake like there's just yeah. no forward planning no care in the community always this move away from slaunch care you know when we could be going the opposite direction yeah uh, a related seasonal thing again mm. to underinvestment in services is uh um, September is obviously the clinch point when it becomes clear that um, young people who need special education needs aren't getting the places they need. And it's, all, it's also something that I think we, we've raised again and again and again. And I think it's, it's absolutely disgraceful the way that the doll is structured is that it stops in mid-July and doesn't come back till mid-September. And yeah. there's that crucial period in late August, early September when it's school places, it's school transport. And I know like our offices and other TDs offices are working on that, but you can't get the minister at that time. Yeah, it's the most frustrating thing. And every year, like like parents have been pointing out as well, just one of the most frustrating aspects of this issue is that like there's children in primary school for eight years. How are they not aware of how many children are coming out of primary school into secondary school? There is a very straightforward way to plan for this situation. And that just is not happening and not only do they seem to not plan for it acknowledge it they seem to then try and ignore it and not deal with it it is just excruciating and for so long now the disability matters committee because it's such a big issue nationwide particularly in cork southwest thinks there is no special school in all of cork southwest we've been trying to get the minister for education to come into the committee Mm -hmm. not only was there like no no then there was cancelling it, not coming in, delayed. It was postponed and postponed and postponed until then after recess when we're already a couple of weeks into the school term. So like that in and of itself was so frustrating. Why couldn't she have come in before then? Why didn't she recognise the importance of what the Disability Matters Committee might be able to contribute in terms of planning for the following school term? That didn't happen. So she came in then to the committee. Three, was it three weeks into the school term, Richard? Yeah. And we could put questions to her. So, like, I was obviously pretty annoyed at this point already and tried to ask her about, um, raised a particular issue that we were dealing with with a a particular case that was just so ridiculous because, like, there is a new um, class opening for autistic children and children with autism in this child's local town. Um, It's not even open yet and it's already oversubscribed. And so they're going to another school that's further away in a class that isn't specifically for that, so it's not suitable. And the regression, stress on the family, the pressure, like, I think we don't realise, like, how hard it is for those families as individuals and how important early intervention is. We know all of this stuff. And then they just don't bother to plan. They come into the committee, avoid answering the questions, talk around it, because we asked about SNA wages Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, She just literally avoided that question. Um... And I was talking about the, this, like, this appeals process as well. So, like, if you, as a school, and so many principals in West Cork, like, whenever I meet them, they do such amazing work in trying to ensure that all of the students in their school, that they can take more students in who need SNAs and who need extra supports because they really want to provide that in their community, that the principal of the local school. And then they're in a situation where they don't have enough SNAs. Their board of management are fundraising. So they're paying SNAs privately. Mm-hmm. They're asking parents, and this is really hard for principals. I'm sorry, can you collect them early today because we don't have the supports? That's not fair on the parent. That's not fair on the student. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair on the teacher to have to ask that, you know. Um, and so then when 
a lot of schools appeal the decision around their SNA allocation, they win and they get more SNAs. So what? why is the system telling them they're not entitled mm-hmm. to that amount of SNAs if they actually are? Because what about the schools who don't realise maybe that if you appeal it, you're more likely to get it? Yeah. And like, why is the system set up to be so adversarial when principals are already overstretched and trying to manage all of this stuff? Um, and then oftentimes as well, they just don't get granted the appeal and either children don't get the support they need or communities like Bali Jahab had to recently end up fundraising to pay for the SNAs. And like she just said... Um, in response, like there is no assessment, something like that. And I was Chiquiti, like, but there I, is. Like, Chiquiti, a, a word, a word that, yeah. which was used technically differently, and she completely ignored everything that I said. Yeah. It was just the most infuriating interaction, mm-hmm. and really just drives me to distraction. It's one of those things. It's one of those days where you're like, what is the point? You know, I can't. I feel like I can't represent these people enough. I want to do something to help. All of us in the office and the team do, and we just can't. And it's so disheartening and so upsetting. Um, but I suppose what we can do is highlight how dysfunctional the system is, how dismissive the minister was, and hope that people will vote for change and ask other people to do it. Because ultimately, sometimes it just seems like the only solution. Yeah. And again, it was something that you had to raise, because you also you raised that with the T-shirt the week before. Uh, you would refer to this individual case, which is symptomatic of the larger situation. But again, it's the amount of time and energy that that parent had to give into helping their child. But then they also had gave gave you permission to mention them. But like it shouldn't have to be that 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 private story shouldn't have to be told. No. And that was the it was a lady yesterday at the Disability Matters Committee um, with Independent. And Living Movement Ireland, um, Catherine Gallagher mm, she was, was talking about that and just talking about how that, that's the only way dis- um, people with disabilities often, the only way that they can make progress is that they have to share these really mm. personal stories. Yeah. Coming into committees and TDs being like, you're so great for telling your story. Thanks so yeah. much for sharing with us. Like, enough. We have all of the information we need. Yeah. People shouldn't have to keep putting their personal lives out in public for <laughs> yeah. TDs to feel a bit of something and then make a you know the department then deal with that one particular issue like yeah. it's just excruciating but yeah something that always is uh after recess kind of september issue over and over again and and then of course in addition you know another very obvious back to school issue is around the school transport issues this is a recurring theme also sorry what happens with school? it's that kids there isn't enough places on a bus yeah to bring yeah. kids to school and you only find that out well, again, they do kind of know, you know, that this might be an issue coming. Like, it's been an issue in Berlin uh, and in a scheme for a long time. It's an issue in Goleen. Like, it's, again, it's this, like, just complete absence of planning. Um, and Ross was doing lots of work on the issues in Goleen, and look, that has been rectified. But it's this always fighting fire rather than planning ahead. And then there's issues of, you know, children need to come in from Castanberg to Bantry to go to the... Um, to coaction into the Sudbury school and then there's no transport from there and the local link are trying to figure out how to do it and there's just this constant lack of planning and oversight so yeah another issue that has come in September and yeah hard to talk about this one I don't know what to say they it was the Institutional Burials Act around June so um, listeners will probably know about the horrors of June mother and baby home where loads of child and infant remains were discovered in a septic tank by 
a local historian, Catherine Corliss, and that sparked international outrage. Um, it sparked a national um, outrage as well, mm-hmm. but also a national acknowledgement that Tume is not the only place where all of this was happening. You know, like these mother and baby homes, they had higher infant mortality rates than the rest of the population throughout the country, and they were in most counties. They were all over, and there was a, a lot of abuse, a lot of forced family separation, everything going on there. But anyway, years later, the only reason the government have come up with this legislation around the exhumation in Tume of those remains is because of that public pressure, international outrage. It's taken them a long time to do it. And we went through this entire process on the Children's Committee of scrutinising this legislation, of the public hearings, the putting forward all of the amendments and trying to change it. And that was very kind of... Um, I mean, I say pointless, it's not pointless because the, the changes that could have been made need to be highlighted and all of that, but we didn't get the changes into the legislation that we wanted. And I suppose the final outcome is that it is so welcome that finally there will be that excavation in June. But it really, I suppose, brought it home to a lot of people who have family members or they think they're family members in institutions throughout the country. It's not going to happen for them as it stands. That mm-hmm. legislation really legislates for a tomb-only um, excavation and a, a, a kind of a reinterment, a dignified reburial of remains. And, yeah, there was, like, a lot of people outside the door that day kind of campaigning and calling for that, that this shouldn't, this should be for all the institutions around the country. And as usual, the minister just ignored it and said that that's what he was going to do, was mm-hmm. one of those. And even because like one of the groups outside was one of the tomb survivors groups and like even with the tomb intervention, mm-hmm. that's still problematical because there isn't, there isn't engagement with them or proper engagement with them or acknowledgement of what their um, stake is in this. Yeah, same playbook as usual yeah. when it comes yeah. to survivors of institutional abuse in Ireland. Just disregard and ignore everything they're saying and tell them what's best for them. And yeah, it was just more of that. And even it's, you know, the way like oftentimes you see it that like just the bureaucracy around things is so much that it's impossible. And so like, for example, in the legislation, it's like if there ever was to be an excavation in another site, that they'd have to set up a whole new kind of body yeah. to do that. So it's like, just as a, a comparison that we used to the door, it was like, imagine if for every crime we set up a new police force. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, because you're not go- you're not yeah, going to. They're yeah. only going to set up the one. Um, and yet it's kind of set up in a way like, you know, what people want from my engagement with survivors is like a proper. There's no making up for what happened. We can't rewind. People are living with that suffering. <coughs> What we can do is allow them to have the same justice that everybody else is entitled to. So I really don't mean to trivialise it or anything like that, but like if there are remains found, say, outside here today, the coroner acts, there is site investigation, and if, you know, because that's obviously a suspicious situation then the guards get involved and there is a natural course of justice. That It doesn't appear at all that that is what's going to happen here. There was, you know, the attempts to disapply the coroner. Now the coroner will be involved with the body to a certain extent, but it's not clear. Like, it's it's just a continuation of the long-term attempt to keep this under the carpet and not deal with it. Um, but they've been forced to deal with it to a certain extent. 
was an opportunity for them to do it the right way. Instead, they're kind of doing a little bit, but in the same manner that they've mm-hmm. always done it. Yeah. Essentially. And, yeah. and that was one of the main debates we had with the minister in in, in the legislative process because uh, the Institutional Burials Act um, has so many, so many caveats. But mm-hmm. the, 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 the main point is, is that it's at intervention where there's manifestly inappropriate burial. It does not require intervention if there's suspicion of death. Yeah. It's only about the burial. A suspicious or unlawful death. Yeah, it's that, just that's not that's not grounds under that bill. And it's sorry, only if it's buried somewhere unusual or yes. like not in a grave. Yeah. But yes. if if someone has died under suspicious circumstances or in in great numbers at a young age or yeah. something yeah. that doesn't fit, that doesn't right. count. And his rationale is because that is under the jurisdiction of the coroner slash. On Gardashia Corner, who have never intervened in it. So he's able to set up this perfect thing whereby he's absolutely technically correct, but is like divorced from reality and and context, whereby he's saying, yeah, that that looks all correct, but they haven't intervened and and they're not. Yeah, so for one, he won't say what exactly he thinks is manifestly inappropriate. Because, like, is it not mass child and infant graves in a mother baby? And that's perhaps manifestly inappropriate depending on what your definition of that is mm-hmm. we don't have a definition definition of manifestly inappropriate and yeah then of course we know the coroner has always been obliged to act and the coroner's act it says if there's remains found in your district you have to act yeah. another uh, thing that triggers the coroner acting is if it's in somebody dies in state custody or care so there you go there's another one and here's another one if it's suspicious or unlawful <laughs> so like there's all of those things that the coroner should have been acting for a long time and they don't mm-hmm. we know that so yeah and also, also, as well like it's it's systematic it's not individual coroners and coroner that the coroner system is incredibly under-resourced <laughs> as well like that's the it's 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 just a system the system isn't responding yeah at the the committee when i asked that like if the you know if the coroner acted whatever they're like they would not have the resources to act in that kind of situation but of course it would require like government planning resources for them to examine that situation and the fact that the resources aren't there isn't a reason that you go so we deny all of these people any kind of a right to justice Mm -hmm. that's not a reason and they won't even admit that that's what they're doing so it's frustrating just talking around it I suppose the other thing we've been raising a lot in September is around the energy crisis and I think like you know we also happened in West Cork in the recession. It was like difficult for businesses to stay open. It was difficult for businesses to recover. And one of the sectors, that's how he's known, sorry, who've been on to us a lot have been like, you know, SMEs and hospitality, basically. And I have to say that I nearly feel like more worried about those kind of, the cafes, the restaurants, the small businesses in West Cork now than I did then back in 2008 because mm. like how how do you keep paying those rising bills if you're just not getting any more in and like when everyone else is in the midst of a kind of energy crisis you're going to go out less and have a yeah. meal maybe or order a coffee or whatever and I just don't see how businesses are going to be able to stay open so we're calling for more urgent interventions and more targeted ones because like what we saw then you know the budget is like they that they they had you know, the hospitality VAT rate at 9% during the pandemic to get people through that very challenging time. And it's going to be going back up to 13% in February, March. So 
their rationale for that move is like, look, did you see what the Dublin hotels were doing during the summer? Price gouging, prices through the roof. What was the price for a hotel at Gareth Brooks in Dublin? All of that stuff. So, okay, you, you know, they made a lot of profits or whatever during that time. But like, can you compare that to the stuffed olive in Bantry? Why are the stuffed olive in Bantry paying the price for what Dublin hotels did around a Gareth Brooks concert? It's like, it doesn't make any sense. We're asking for targeted supports. Mm. I get the fact that like the hospitality VAT rate, you can't target with that. That's a sweeping VAT yeah. rate for the sector. And it's very difficult to say, introduce a different VAT rate for rural areas versus urban areas. Do you do that like via, if you live within the local authority district, but like you go all the way up to cities in a local authority mm. district. It's just, it's a really difficult thing to manage and work. What they can do is target supports at businesses. And like, I think it's probably pretty clear to everybody now that the supports that are in the budget, they're welcome, but there will need to be more very soon mm-hmm. because um, it doesn't look like energy prices are going down no. and it doesn't look like consumerism is going to go up. And the more like, you know, if you see one close, it has a knock on impact on the kind of footfall in the town and then how that has a negative impact on all of the others. Um, and, you know, it's one of the biggest employers in West Cork. So it's something we've been doing a lot of work on in September and just trying to get uh, more supports for the sector. Yeah. I think it, like, you know, any good stuff going on in September. The National Learning Network Awards in Bantry were lovely. I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. It was one of those days that I was like, things aren't all bad. <laughs> this is an amazing thing that we can all be proud of in West Cork. Yeah. Um, the graduation of the students in the National Learning Network. And did you say, I think I saw on your Instagram that you said that they have a higher employment rate afterwards than many of the universities or something like that? I mean, their employment rate after graduating is exceptional 92% so yeah it's just an amazing organisation and the way that they operate like they help people in quite a lot of different ways to enable them to access education and then employment so helping people with things like accessible transport to do all of these things and it's just an exceptional model and it just shows how effective it is when the right supports are put in place and like um, another highlight of the September was maybe I had the independent living movement up in Leinster House in the AV room and um, one of them was just talking about Patrick I think it was saying like when were the government going to realise that we're also like an economic benefit like everybody yeah. else we can work like we like working yeah, yeah. we want yeah. to work and it's like just to see that actually the really successful model that we have in West Cork it made me really proud you know um, just a really nice event they acknowledge that and practice it and it all plays out so effectively Um it just, I suppose it goes to show what the government could be doing. You see these things happening and yeah, it's just incredible. So that was fun. What else happened that was fun in September? It was actually really busy, I suppose. It's, it's back to Dole. There's so much builds up over the summer. It's the build. The we'll build try and stuff. have a bigger fun section <laughs> in October. Yeah, and... We do keep everybody up to date and everything that's going on in social media. If you want to send us a message, if there's anything you'd like us to cover on the podcast, please let us know. Thanks so much for listening. Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. The music theme is Safety Net by Riot, taken from the YouTube audio library.